Hi, my name is Michelle Stuckey, and I'm going to be reading the scriptures for today. So please follow along as I read to you of Jesus' triumphant entry from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. But now... It is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you, and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground, and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place, because you did not recognize it when God visited you. God bless the reading of his word. We're glad you're here this morning as we begin the celebration of Holy Week by observing Palm Sunday. Let's bow together in prayer. Creation speaks of your power and majesty, Lord our God. We join our voices with all of creation declaring the wonder of your name. As the people on that first Palm Sunday we say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We confess, Lord Jesus, that we are like the people of the first Palm Sunday. We're often mistaken about what makes for peace. We think that it comes through military might political domination, strength rather than weakness. 
we fail to understand that your way of peace is by your sacrifice on the cross, reconciling us to yourself, making peace with God and providing a foundation for peace on earth. We pray that as the Prince of Peace, you will bring peace on earth. We pray for peace between warring nations. We pray for peace in families where there's relational turmoil. We pray for peace between individuals who've had a falling out with one another. And most of all, we pray that we will experience the peace that passes all understanding in our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We pray for Grace Point Church. We pray as we continue to seek a new pastor, you guide and direct the transition team. We pray that you would lead us to the person that you have already picked for this congregation. We continue to pray for growing spiritual vitality, for enthusiasm, for the Spirit's work in our midst, that people might look at the congregation and say, there's something different. The Lord is at work. Father, we pray that we will follow you the way the truth and the life that we might find the abundant life that you offer when we submit ourselves to you may we say on a daily basis not my will but yours be done speak to us through your word this morning by your holy spirit in christ's name we pray amen so we begin what is known as holy week As we look at the details of Holy Week over the next several minutes, uh, I want to look back to the word just in chapter 18. Jesus introduces his plan for the week. In chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles and they will mock and insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. The meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. But he's laid out for us the, the agenda for what we call Holy Week. I think we can summarize, at least I'd like to summarize this morning, the week with three words. The first word, cheers. The second word, tears. And the third word, jeers. He begins the week by entering the city of Jerusalem and the crowds cheer him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's recognized and cheered as he enters the city. And as you look at the first aspect of this text that we're considering this morning, beginning at verse 28 and following, there's a series of items that help us to kind of summarize this excitement and the cheering of the crowd as, as he enters the city of Jerusalem. First of all, there's the donkey, the colt. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you uh, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those are the prophetic words that come from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as the prophet predicted the coming of the Messiah. And if you go back even further in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 through 11, where the Lord uh, makes promises to the nations of Israel, he talks about the fact that the Messiah will come on a donkey. I've often, as a kid, thought about this passage and as the disciples went to pick up the donkey, wondering how this happened that they could suddenly show up and say, we want your donkey, and how someone would respond to that. I suppose to a certain extent, Jesus had already had some conversations and involvement with the owner of the donkey so that it was set up, and it was not, as I thought as a kid, you know, grand theft donkey. Uh, <laughs> uh, but however it happened, the donkey is a representation of how the Messiah were, was to come into the, the presence of the people. It was to be in contrast to uh, the coming of Pilate, for example. During the High Holy Weeks, the Romans were often concerned about uh, riots. And so Pilate would come into the city uh, from the east uh, and he would be riding on a stallion with a trail of military people behind him just to be in the city in case any kinds of riots broke out. And in contrast to that, Jesus comes humbly on the back of the colt. He's a different kind of king. There's a different way in which he is going to bring peace on earth. So there's the donkey. The other item that comes along is the palm branches. As the kids came in this morning, they were waving palm branches. The palm branches are not mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, but in the other three Gospels, there's reference to the fact that the crowd waved palm branches and laid branches uh, in front of him as he came in. Perhaps Luke does not mention the palm branches because he's more Gentile-oriented and the audience of his Gospel was Gentile rather than Jewish. The palm branches were significant for a Jewish crowd. The last time the nations of Israel had been out from under the domination of the Romans was years ago when they had rebelled against the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. There, the people wanted to raise palm branches, which was a symbol of their freedom and was on the Jewish coins. When the Jewish nation was free and they could use their own coins, the symbol on the coin was the palm branch. The palm branches were not, however, a symbol and piece of love and love, as we Christians sometimes assume. They were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, an expression of the Jewish people of their desire for political freedom. What we don't read in the text, we can assume from the apocryphal books of the Maccabees. The fronde flappers 
as they might be called in John chapter 12 and following, go out to meet Jesus toward the city gate with the 200-year-old story of Simon Maccabeus vividly in their minds. Maccabeus emerged at a time when there was a brutal genocide by, uh, uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes when he held sway as a Roman over Palestine. In 167 BC, Antiochus precipitated a full-scale revolt by the Jewish people, having already forbidden the Jews on pain of death to worship or to be Jewish. He set up in the Jewish temple an altar to Zeus and offered pig's sacrifice on it. That's referred to in the book of Daniel as the abomination of desolation. Antiochus was an apostle of the Hellenistic philosophy, and he meant to bring the entire Jewish realm under the influence of the Greek way. The book of 1 Maccabees in the Apocrypha gives us some indication of how brutal this was. In Maccabees 1, 60 to 61, we read, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, they hung the infants from their mother's neck. Stinging outrage by Matthias, an old man who was of priestly background, he became so angry with this that he rounded up his five sons and all the uh, weapons that he could find and began a guerrilla campaign against Antiochus and his soldiers. Though Matthias died and early on his sons Judas and uh, others uh, were unable to overcome, a full 20 years later, Judas Maccabeus and his son Jonathan and Simon took over uh, and achieved independence and established a full century of sovereign uh, Jewish independence. And it was at that time that the Jews used the palm fronds. In Maccabeus, 1 Maccabeus 13 through 51, we read, On the 23rd day of the second month of the 171st year, the Jews entered Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Knowing what we know about what happened then, it allows us to read into the minds of those who were waving their palms on the Sunday, that, uh, the first day of the week where Jesus entered Jerusalem. They were going out to meet Jesus in hopes that he was coming to crush and remove from Israel their great oppressor, the Roman government. What do the palms say? They say, we're tired of being kicked around. We're hungry to be number one again, ready to strut our stuff. Here's our agenda, and you look like just the man we need. Welcome, warrior king. Hail, hero king, do your stuff. The third item is the cloaks. They rolled out, in a sense, the red carpet. 
In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu became a, a king, the people spread out their, their garments in front of him as a way of basically endorsing him as their king. And then there's the psalm, the psalm which is quoted from Psalm 118.26, which is a festal psalm, a coronation psalm. So all that we see in this uh, procession of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, from the people's perspective, they fully anticipated that they were going to be delivered by some sort of power, some sort of warrior, some sort of military takeover, and that Jesus would be in the lead. And so it's all about cheering the one who would deliver them. But when you get to verse 41, the mood changes. In verse 41, Jesus says, as he approached Jerusalem, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, and he weeps. Tears. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, and he said, if you, even you, had known what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. There are three instances in the New Testament where Jesus weeps. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. In the book of Hebrews, he talks about the fact that Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, he offered us up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. We know that he wept over the city of Jerusalem, recorded in Luke chapter 13, and he weeps here. What is he weeping for? Why, what brought Jesus to tears? With such a crowd of people cheering for him, why the contrast? The crowd sang, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But the very peace that they were looking for was about to be taken from them, and its place would be the destruction by the enemies, the Roman armies. The problem was the people of Israel misunderstood how peace would come. Here he is, the Prince of Peace, the king who rides in on the royal donkey into the heart of Judaism, and he is unable to bring them peace. Their hearts are callous and closed and resistant to the good news that he brings. He's not accepted as those who proclaim peace and who bring good tidings. They misunderstood. And Jesus was brokenhearted because they understood that peace would come by military force, by political power, by domination. And Jesus wanted them to understand that the peace that he brought was brought by his loving offer of himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for them. The only other alternative to the Messiah's peace, which they ignored, would be awful judgment. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, Alexander, Charlemagne, Caesar, and I have built great empires. But on what did we depend? 
They, we depended upon force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that he built on love. And even to this day, millions of people will die for him. The contrast of the kingdoms and the contrast of the king. Jesus says they were spiritually blind. Does God hide truth? The Apostle Paul says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ who is the very image of God. Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides. And there is a sense in which Jesus brought them blindness, but only because they were willfully rebellious against the truth he was teaching. Willful blindness had caused a greater blindness still. So Jesus weeps because they are blind and they cannot see the spiritual reality of what he was trying to do. Is the blindness their fault? The word that's used here is the idea of, of keeping from being seen. Specifically withdrawing from sight or knowledge. So as they refused to listen and look at what Jesus was doing, it turned, he turned away. The man of sorrows grieved over the fact that so many of his people had closed their eyes to the truth of his identity. John chapter 1 verse 11 says he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus predicts a coming judgment because the people of his day refused to see who he was and respond to his message. Josephus tells us a great deal about the terrible and gruesome suffering that the inhabitants of Jerusalem experienced in 70 AD when the Romans came and sacked the city of Jerusalem. Many died by famine, others were killed by desperate desperate bandits within the city. Thousands were slaughtered by the Romans when they breached the walls of Jerusalem. Josephus says that as many as 1.1 million Jews perished during the siege and that 97,000 were taken captive. Today's historians say that that's probably an exaggeration. And even if the numbers reduced are correct, they reveal a horrible suffering that took the city in 70 AD. They rejected the opportunity that God had given them. And as a result, the city of Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. Cheers, tears, jeers. As we move on in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, the men who were guarding Jesus began to mock and beat him, and they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Because they rejected him, they began to jeer him and turn away from him. As he hung on the cross, the crowd around him began to jeer and say, save yourself. But he was the one who had he saved himself, could not have saved us. 
But because he refused to save himself and offered himself as a sacrifice, he is now capable and able and willing to save others. As he hung on the cross, the two thieves beside him mocked him, jeered at him, but one recognized him as the Messiah and said, remember me when you enter into paradise. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was a stumbling block because people didn't fully understand the message, the spiritual message of deliverance that he was giving. Jesus tells us about that in a parable in the 20th chapter where he talks about the tenants. He says that he went on to tell the people this parable. Man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him away, threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Little did they know that it was the killing of him that enabled them to have inheritance. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyards to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and said, then he, what is the meaning of with that which is written. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So what's the message for us out of all of this? I think there's a couple of messages. One is we begin to look at Jesus and let him define what he came to do for us. I think in these days it's very easy for us to look at Jesus and say, I know what I want him to do for me. And to begin to make the mistake that the people of Jesus' day did. Thinking that we want Jesus to destroy our enemies. To set up his kingdom and that we will, you know, basically follow in his train. But Jesus is saying, that's not the way. Come unto me all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He is the humble king. He is the king who came in love and offered himself on our behalf to forgive us of our sins. The other thought comes that there is a time when the door is open and Jesus says, whosoever will may come. But as happened in Jesus' day, those who refuse to accept him, the window of opportunity closed. And for those who don't see him as the keystone of their life, will find him to be a stumbling block. 
And so the question, I guess, for us this morning is, who is Jesus for us? Is he the humble king, the lamb who was sacrificed? Is he the one that we are willing and gladly accepting as our Lord and Savior? Or is he the one who becomes a stumbling block for us as we think of our relationship with our Lord? His peace is an offer that he gives to each one of us. It's simply we reach out and acknowledge him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, who has come to save us. And we do that simply by trusting him. Let's pray together.